Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Even though this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally and historically accurate as possible. Every day a new section of the Doctrine and Covenants will be released. I hope that you'll visit this often and be able to share this uh, with your friends. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Doctrine and Covenants podcast. This episode is going to be for section 61. I'm going to read the heading first. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet on the bank of the Missouri River, McElwain's Bend, August the 12th, 1831. On their return trip to Kirtland, the prophet and ten elders had traveled down the Missouri River in canoes. On the third day of the journey, many dangers were experienced. Elder William W. Phelps, in daylight vision, saw the destroyer riding in power upon the face of the waters. Now, a question I want to ask is, is the destroyer that they're seeing, is it the devil or something else? John the Revelator saw in vision that in the last days, destruction would be upon the waters. This same principle was revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith and his companions as they journeyed from Independence, Missouri to Ohio in August 1831. They traveled in canoes on the Missouri River for two days, arriving near McElwain's Bend. The canoe in which the prophet and Sidney Rigdon were riding ran into a tree lodged in bobbing in the, in the river. The canoe was upset, and the occupants almost drowned. With this near tragedy, the party of eleven decided to encamp. Regarding this experience, the prophet Joseph Smith recorded, on the ninth, in company with ten elders, I left Independence Landing for Kirtland. We started down the river in canoes and went the first day as far as Fort Osage, where we had an excellent wild turkey for supper. Nothing very important occurred till the third day when many of the dangers so common upon the western waters manifested themselves, and after we had encamped upon the bank of the river at McElwain's Bend, Brother Phelps, in open vision by daylight, saw the destroyer in his most horrible power right upon the face of the waters. Others heard the noise but saw not the vision. So it doesn't explain much about what that destroyer is. Maybe later on we'll get uh, have a little discussion about that. All right, verse 1. Behold, and hearken unto the voice of him who has all power, who is from everlasting to everlasting, even Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Behold, verily thus saith the Lord unto you, O ye elders of my church, who are assembled upon this spot, whose sins are now forgiven you. For I, the Lord, forgive sins, and am merciful unto those who confess their sins with humble hearts. But verily I say unto you, that it is not needful for this whole company of mine elders to be moving swiftly upon the waters, whilst the inhabitants on either side are perishing in unbelief. This may seem at first contradictory to section 60, verses 1 and 5, but the Lord explained that they were to hurry up and do missionary work rather than to hurry up and go home. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I suffered it that ye might bear record. Behold, there are many dangers upon the waters, and more especially hereafter. For I, the Lord, have decreed in mine anger many destructions upon the waters, yea, and especially upon these waters. Nevertheless, all flesh is in mine hand, and he that is faithful among you shall not perish by the waters. Despite some popular belief to the contrary, Doctrine and Covenant 61 does not prohibit travel by water or even swimming for missionaries. For God is more powerful than Satan, and those who are faithful need not fear to ride even upon the wild Missouri. Even in those future times when the curse upon the waters will become more evident than it is now, the upright in heart will still be able to travel to Zion safely by water. 
It is the unfaithful and the rebellious, like the rebellious elders on the previous day, who need to fear the power of Satan over the waters. For by their unfaithfulness, they render themselves susceptible to that power. Notice that when the elders at McElwain's Bend re repented, they were allowed to continue their journey even upon the waters of the Missouri River. <clears throat> one of the reasons, or one of the main reasons, that missionaries don't swim, or can't go swimming, um, is usually because of the scantiness of the apparel that is being worn by both men and women. And that's a distraction that missionaries don't need. All right, verse 7. Wherefore, it is expedient that my servant Sidney Gilbert and my servant William W. Phelps be in haste upon their errand and mission. Nevertheless, I would not suffer that ye should part until ye were chastened for all your sins, that ye might be one, that ye might not perish in wickedness. But now, verily I say, it behooveth me that ye should repent, that ye should part. Wherefore, let my servants Sidney Gilbert and William W. Phelps take their former company, and let them take their journey in haste, that they may fill their mission, and through faith they shall overcome. And inasmuch as they are faithful, they shall be preserved, and I, the Lord, will be with them. And let the residue take that which is needful for clothing. Let my servant Sidney Gilbert take that which is not needful with him, as you shall agree. And now, behold, for your good I gave unto you a commandment concerning these things, and I, the Lord, will reason with you as with men in days of old. Behold, I, the Lord, in the beginning blessed the waters, but in the last days by the mouth of my servant John I cursed the waters. When God first created the world, both the land and the waters were blessed. Then, when Adam and Eve transgressed in the Garden of Eden, the land was cursed for their sakes, but the waters were not. In the beginning, God cursed the earth, but did he curse all things pertaining to it? No, he did not curse the water, but he blessed it. From the beginning, water was ordained to be a cleansing and a purifying element. When the earth became corrupted in the days of Noah, God purified it by bringing the waters upon it. Likewise, today, sinful men and women may, be, may also be purified through baptism by immersion in water. One of Christ's most important symbolic names is the living water, or the water of life. The pronouncement of the curse is past. The full effect of the curse, it seems, is in the future. Verse 15, Wherefore the days will come that no flesh shall be safe upon the waters, and it shall be said in days to come that none is able to go up to the land of Zion upon the waters, but he that is upright in heart. And as I, the Lord, in the beginning cursed the land, even so in the last days have I blessed it in its time for the use of my saints, that they may partake the fatness thereof. According to this verse, however, God has already removed the curse upon the land and blessed it in order that the saints might establish Zion and enjoy its fruits. The land is no longer cursed and there is no more impediment for those saints who will establish Zion, whether in their own hearts, in their own homes, ward stakes, or eventually in Jackson County, Missouri. Verse 18, And now I give unto you a commandment, that what I say unto one I say unto all, that you shall forewarn your brethren concerning these waters, that they come not in journey, journeying upon them, lest, they fail, lest their faith fail, and they are caught in snares. I, the Lord, have decreed, and the destroyer rideth upon the face thereof, and I revoke not the decree. It is not clear, here we go as an explanation about this, it is not clear if this destroyer is an angel of God or a devil. On other occasions, when the destroyer is mentioned in Scripture, he is a servant of God. For example, at the time of the first Passover in ancient Egypt, death was sent to all households that, he did, that did not have the blood of a lamb upon their doorposts. But faithful Israelites were protected. The Lord promised them that he would not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. 
In our dispensation, when the saints were being driven from Zion, the, the Lord declared, Behold, the destroyer I have sent forth to destroy and lay waste mine enemies, and not many years hence they shall not be left to pollute mine heritage and to blaspheme my name upon the lands which I have consecrated for the gathering together of my saints. In a similar vein, angels are crying unto the Lord day and night, who are ready and waiting to be sent forth to destroy the wicked. Likewise, the revelation given to John the Beloved, referring to in this section, mentions several angels who send plagues and calamities upon the earth. Given that the destroyer rides upon the waters by the Lord's decree, it seems likely that the being seen in vision by William W. Phelps was a servant of God. On the other hand, Joseph Fielding Smith wrote concerning this decree, These brethren, while encamped at McElwain's Bend on the Missouri, beheld the power of the destroyer as he rode upon the storm. One of that number saw him in all his fearful majesty, and the Lord revealed to the entire group something of the power of this evil personage. It may seem strange to us, but it is the fact that Satan exercises dominion and has some control over the elements. Paul speaks of Satan as the prince of the power of the air. The Lord revealed to these brethren some of the power of the adversary of mankind and how he rides upon the storm as a means of affording them protection. They were commanded to use judgment as they traveled upon these waters, and the saints coming to Zion were instructed to travel by land on their way up to Zion. Moreover, notwithstanding the great power of Satan upon the waters, the Lord will still held command, and he could protect his people, whether on land or by water, as they journeyed. The curse pronounced by the mouth of John is still in effect and will be more fully realized at a future time. Satan has been given power over the waters, and that curse will not be revoked until the Savior comes. And that was from the doctrinal commentary of the Doctrine and Covenants. Verse 20. I, the Lord, was angry with you yesterday, but today mine anger is turned away. That's because they'd repented. Wherefore, let those concerning whom I have spoken, that should take their journey in haste. Again I say unto you, let them take their journey in haste. And it mattereth not unto me, after a little, if it so be that they fill their mission, whether they go by water or by land, let this be as it is made known unto them according to their judgments hereafter. As the language here clearly illustrates, Doctrine and Covenant 61 must not be understood as a strict prohibition against travel by water. The elders had become vulnerable to Satan's power over the waters only because of their murmurings, hard feelings, and lack of faith. Now that they had repented, they were, they were no longer vulnerable and could travel by water if necessary as long as their missionary responsibilities were not neglected. Verse 23, And now concerning my servants, Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith Jr., and Oliver Cowdery, let them come not again upon the waters, save it be upon the canal, while journeying upon their homes, or in other words, they shall not come upon the waters to journey, save upon the canal. You can see how traveling on the water made it easier for them just to travel straight home without stopping along the way. Uh, once you're on the water, there's nobody really to talk to. Verse 24, Behold, I, the Lord, have appointed a way for the journeying of my saints, and behold, this is the way that after they leave the canal they shall journey by land, inasmuch as they are commanded to journey and go up to unto the land of Zion. And they shall do like unto the children of Israel, pitching their tents by the way. And behold, this commandment you shall give unto all your brethren. Nevertheless, unto whom is given power to, to command the waters, unto him it is given by the Spirit to know all his ways. Wherefore, let him do as the Spirit of the living, living God commandeth him, whether upon the land or upon the waters, as it remaineth with me to do hereafter. And unto you is given the course for the saints, or the way for the saints of the camp of the Lord, to journey. 
And again, verily I say unto you, my servants, Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith, Jr., and Oliver Cowdery, shall not open their mouths in the congregations of the wicked until they arrive at Cincinnati. And in that place they shall lift up their voices unto God against that people, yea, unto him whose anger is kindled against their wickedness, a people who are well nigh ripened for destruction. At the time of this revelation, Cincinnati was only a village, yet it was like other western towns, such as Independence, the gathering place of many who had been forced to flee from the larger cities because of the violation of the law. In all the border towns in that day, wickedness to a very great extent prevailed. Verse 32. And from thence let them journey for the congregations of their brethren, for their labors even now are wanted more abundantly among them than among the congregations of the wicked. And now concerning the residue, let them journey and declare the word among the congregations of the wicked, inasmuch as it is given. And inasmuch as they do this, they shall rid their garments, and they shall be spotless before me. In other words, God will hold you responsible for those whom you might have saved had you done your duty. That was by John Taylor. And let them journey together, or two by two, as seemeth them good. Only let my servant Reynolds Cahoon. Now, what about Reynolds Cahoon? He lived from uh, 1790 to 1861. He was an early leader in Latter-day Saint movement, and later in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was one of the inaugural members of the Council of Fifty, organized by Joseph Smith in 1844. Cahoon was born at Cambridge, New York. He later moved to Kirtland, Ohio. Here he was baptized into the Latter-day Saint Church by Parley P. Pratt. In June 1831, Cahoon was ordained a high priest by Joseph Smith, Jr. Cahoon traveled as a missionary to Jackson County, Missouri with Samuel Harrison Smith in June of 1831. He was put in charge of raising funds to finance Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible in October 1831. On February the 10th, 1832, Cahoon was made a counselor to Bishop Newell K. Whitney. He also served with Hiram Smith as a member of the Kirtland Temple Committee. In Davies County, Missouri, in 1838, Cahoon was a counselor to John Smith, and later the same position in relation to Smith in Montrose, Iowa. Cahoon was a Mormon uh, pioneer and emigrated to Utah Territory under the direction of Brigham Young. Cahoon died at South Cottonwood, Salt Lake City, Utah Territory. So he remained faithful all his life. And my servant Samuel H. Smith, brother to the prophet, he dies shortly after Joseph's death. In fact, Samuel is considered one of the martyrs of the gospel. After Joseph and Hiram's death, Samuel was hurrying, and in his, in his haste, he fell upon the horn of his saddle and injured himself internally. And within about a month or so, he died from his injuries. And so he's considered one of the martyrs of the restoration, too. Samuel Smith, with whom I am well pleased, be not separated until they return to their homes, and this for a wise purpose in me. And now, verily, I say unto you, and what I say unto one, I say unto all, be of good cheer, little children, for I am in your midst, and I have not forsaken you. Tribulation is not evidence that the Lord has abandoned his people. Verse 37, And inasmuch as you have humbled yourselves before me, the blessings of the kingdom are yours. Gird up your loins, in other words, get to work, and be watchful, be prepared, be sober, take important things seriously. Looking forth for the coming of the Son of Man, for he cometh in an hour you think not. Pray always that you enter not into temptation, that you may abide the day of his coming, whether in life or in death, even so. Amen. Preparation for the Lord's return is not exclusively reserved for those in mortality. The second coming will also be a reality in a day of judgment for those in the spirit world. Those who have died will come forth from the grave in proper order according to the law they abide. The righteous saints, whether alive on the earth or in the grave, will be caught up to meet him. Those who are found under condemnation 
will be judged unworthy to be resurrected and to live upon the earth during the millennium. Whether we are alive at the Savior's coming or have died prior to that event, we will still want to be able to abide the day of his coming. For the living, this means being allowed to stay upon the earth after his coming and to participate in his millennial kingdom. For the dead, it means being resurrected with the other righteous dead on that day in the morning of the first resurrection, also to participate in his millennial kingdom. And that was from the commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants. I bear testimony that these things are true and that as we stay faithful that we can be prepared for the second coming of the Savior Jesus Christ. I bear that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. I hope. Bye.